Welcome to Afterthought, a podcast series that puts our present moment into perspective and invites you to think through our world in crisis together. I'm Dawson. I'm Karambir. And I'm Chris. You're listening to Afterthought. In this episode, we'll talk about expansionism across a variety of scales. We'll also talk about World War II as a precedent to our current world in crisis today and discuss what lessons we can learn from this historic event. And finally, we'll do a deep dive on mobilization as it was done during World War II and see how it applies to climate change. As we're making this podcast in the midst of a whole set of global crises, we have the coronavirus, we have climate change. One of the huge efforts that we're really trying to put in is to get perspective on our current time. And so we've been talking about uh, a lot of different scales of thinking and a lot of different time scales. We've talked about the Holocene. We've talked about the Great Acceleration. Um, and we'll be talking about evolutionary scales. But one of the huge ways that we're going to try to do, get perspective is through the notion of precedence and through historical precedence. So the way we're going to do that is we're going to be talking about World War II today, and we're going to be talking about sort of what that means for our time. But the notion of a historical precedent, we can't necessarily, like what we've been talking about with getting a generalization of our time, we can't necessarily have a, a precedent which fully encapsulates our present moment. Because like we've said, our time is very unique. It is unprecedented in many ways. But what we can do is we can go back and we can maybe trace certain themes from various, various uh, historical precedents and use them to illuminate our times. And now, Karambir, you mentioned a really interesting question at close to the end of our last episode that I think we should unpack a little bit more. And so you were talking a little bit about this tracing a theme throughout various historical timescales. Uh, can we go back to that? Yeah, I think we picked up uh, four or five unique historical events. And through them, we were kind of trying to analyze the scale and the human capacity and how it changes over time. We talked about Holocene and the onset of uh, uh, sorry, agricultural revolution. And then we talked about uh, the next step was industrial revolution and then the 1950s, the Great Acceleration, and to current day, a day when we have coronavirus and a global pandemic and a global lockdown in effect. So I think one thing we should perhaps clarify for our listeners is that what is a common theme in all four or five of these events that we're talking about over the last 10,000 years through this his unique historical moments. What is a common theme, the thought line that unites them? How can we understand these historical events? So, yeah, and as a, as a theme for a thought line, there was a, a visual commonality to all of the different levels or scales of thinking that we were applying in that there would be a long, slow period where there wasn't apparently not a lot of growth happening or not a lot of difference happening. It seemed fairly stable. Right? Remember, a, a basic distinction between the Holocene and the Anthropocene is that the Holocene is characterized by a very stable climate regime. Anthropocene, um, which 
the highlight of it in the present is climate change is climate volatility, right? So there's a huge difference between those two, and you can use 1950 as kind of a dividing line. Probably too simple and too simplistic, but that's part of what we're aiming for is sometimes to simplify before we dive back into the complexity. 1950 is sort of a dividing line between the stable climate of the Holocene and the, the volatile climate change of the Anthropocene. Um, so through these different scales, you have this long, slow, gradual, and then you have suddenly exponential or, or mega exponential growth. It's like there is a breakthrough through a certain ceiling or a certain limitation, and then suddenly there is like wild exploration or growth or increase or spread. So to use a simple word like spread, a commonality that the coronavirus would have with the great acceleration is that the virus spreads from nothing. It appears, it slowly spreads in a certain area, it jumps to humans, and then with global travel and, and transportation systems, you get a global spread. And, and right now, if you, because it's summer 2020, if you were to look on the news at the spread of the coronavirus historically in the last number of months, you will see it go from zero to not 60, but like 360 in, in, in a very short amount of time. We can do the same with the great acceleration, now not in terms of the spread of the virus, but in terms of the spread of human technology, human industry, human production, human consumption, human population, all of these markers of human activity um, accelerate rapidly. And by comparison to tens of thousands of years into hundreds of thousands of years in the past when humans have lived, it's like the, the blade of the hockey stick sticking up into the air compared to this long, long, long stick lying on the ground, which was very gradual. What is it that's accelerating there? Well, it's human impacts on the globe, and therefore we call it the Anthropocene. If we then take another step back and look at, uh, let's say, the Holocene itself, which is 10,000 years, approximately 10 to 12,000 years ago, um, what is the spread there? Well, agriculture has developed. And in a relatively short span of time, not short compared to the Anthropocene in the last 70 years or compared to the coronavirus in the last few months, but in evolutionary time, 10,000 years is, is, is very fast. What spreads there is agriculture, and it spreads throughout the world. And depending on how you look at it, you could say very slowly from a contemporary point of view. But from an evolutionary point of view, it's rapid. It's like a hockey stick again. It just shoots up in terms of the spread of agriculture, the spread of cities, the spread of civilization. Um, it consolidates itself at a certain point around 2,000 years ago which is why we call it the common era, right? It's the Christian calendar. But, but what the common era is, is a certain consolidation of civilizational systems that spreads to the present day. I didn't mention that last episode, but that's another one we could insert. I use the metaphor of Russian dolls, right? So if the coronavirus is the little tiny guy at the center, right? What's the next biggest doll that it fits within, well, that would be the great acceleration. And, and depending on what you're fo we're focusing on and defining, we will see that th there's the same doll, but at a different scale. So your question as to what is the continuity, what is the sameness? Well, it is that there is a long period of gestation or, or development uh, where that seems relatively stable, doesn't seem to be much happening. And then there's a breakthrough and there's exponential growth. And in fact, the, the emergence evolutionarily of human beings follows that pattern too. We gestate, if you like, for a long time in Africa, milling about. Our number were almost wiped out on a couple of occasions um, between 200 and 100,000 years ago. 
Um, but once we leave Africa, we just spread, and it's another hockey stick, if you like, and it's another great acceleration, if you like. We spread throughout the entire planet, and and we we are not limited by natural niches. We we live in the Arctic, we live in tropical jungles, we live in deserts, we live on top of mountains, we we live on the ocean, we live in the prairies. I mean, we don't seem to have any limitations. So we've broken through some sort of ceiling that a lot of other species have to observe in terms of how the ecosystem limits us. So if you want to use a word, and it's a word I use in my book that I published last year, um, I call this expansionism. All species naturally expand into their habitat, into their niche. And if they don't really experience limitations or predators, which is extremely unusual in evolutionary terms. All species co-evolve together and and they set limits upon each other. That's how ecosystems are supposed to work. Um, But we do have examples, usually through human intervention. For example, you bring a bunch of rabbits to Australia. I can't remember why. I don't know if it was an accident or if they intended to bring them in order to hunt them like in the British, good British style. But rabbits have no natural, predator, no natural predators or limits in Australia, and they immediately become a, a dangerous pest that spreads throughout the whole, accelerates their spread throughout the continent of Australia. So there's a very different example that's partly natural, but because of human intervention, there's sort of an unnatural acceleration of that natural process. And, and so you get these invasive species, as they get called in, in ecological literature. Um, so why, by calling it expansionism, the ism adds a certain sort of element that goes beyond just the natural capacity. And, and here it's human cognitive capacity. Because humans have this cognitive capacity, sapiens, to think the world rather than just merely react to it, um, we break through the natural scales that existed. And that's what accelerates again and again and again. So the commonality that I see throughout all of these different scales, Karambir, is the human capacity to expand beyond previously natural limits. And that repeats itself in the spread of human beings across the planet. It repeats itself in the, then the spread of agriculture and civilization across the planet. It repeats itself with within the spread of industry across the planet. And post-World War II, there's a certain, and we'll talk about it in a lot more detail in this episode, there's a certain coalescence or of many factors based on the industry, technology, science, research, military involvement, governmental involvement. All of that coalesces in a certain form that's forced by the crisis of World War II um, into a certain form that then accelerates rapidly post-war from 1950 to 2020. So we're sort of using this this common notion, it seems to me, that history repeats itself. And, and I can see that, that, okay, maybe it, maybe it does. But then at the same time, when we're looking at this time, like, I, to me, it seems so different and so volatile and nothing like what we can find in history. Uh, and so I just wonder, when we're looking back on these scales, what is it exactly that we're doing to find precedents? What is, and what does finding a precedent mean for how we're thinking? Yeah, well, I think the point that history repeats itself is is totally apt, but it's not a perfect repetition. Often it's a repetition at a different scale and a much bigger scale. And in fact, you could even go beyond history and we go beyond history into evolution. I mean, a famous biological uh, saying, right, is ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, right? The individual development uh, of an organism kind of repeats the evolutionary history of the species, I mean, in a lot of ways, 
my argument, my understanding, I lay it out in the book in a lot more detail, but it is that human history in many ways recapitulates, repeats, replicates, whatever word we want to use, um, evolutionary process. So on the one hand, and remember, talked about it a bit last episode, the notion that we hit a certain ceiling and then you break through it and then there's this new potential. Um, so insofar as it's new, it's discontinuous or a break from what happened before. But if you look closely enough at where it emerged and how it emerged, well, it, there's continuity with what happened before. Um, there, right now is a crisis. It's an incipient moment. Whatever new emerges from this, we should be able to trace how it emerged from the old. But in, in that emergence, and the part of the meaning of the word emergence, there, there is certain things that are, that are new, that are mutations, if you want to be very evolutionary about it, or, or new realizations or breakthroughs, if we want to use more kind of historical consciousness terms. And that ties into the, your question, um, Dawson, about precedence, and a great question, because, yeah, we are in unprecedented times, which means there is no other time ever either historically or evolutionarily, that have been like this. Well, if that's the case, you know, why look to history or evolution for precedence, right? Aren't we, like, contradicting ourselves? So, hopefully this is helpful. Taken as a whole, our globalizing moment, all of the different, we're trying to characterize it in these, this podcast series, our globalizing moment taken as a whole, this convergence of crises at multiple levels, historical crises, social crises, political crises, health crises, but also natural crises, evolutionary crisis, if you like. Taken as a whole, it's unprecedented. But if you take and isolate one particular aspect, and we could think about it in terms of different scales, which we've already been doing, but if you take a certain aspect, you can say, well, there is a precedent for this happening. So, for what we're going to look at in detail today is World War II as a type of precedent for today. In what way is it a precedent? It's a historical precedent. You could also pick a different sort of the emergence of human being evolutionarily is a precedent we could use to understand the kind of breakthroughs right now and crisis we're having right now. I mean, we're not going to do that, but I'm just using that as a particular example. A different one would be the sixth extinction. There are precedents for extinction events, mass extinction events. Right? So it isn't totally unprecedented. But if you look closely at the, the sixth extinction of today, what is unprecedented about it is that we are the cause. And what makes that unprecedented is we actually have conscious awareness of what we're doing. We've increasingly known it since about the 50s and 60s, right? Silent Spring is, by Rachel Carson is often used as a, like the, the beginning of evolutionary consciousness, or I'm um, sorry, ecological consciousness um, and the ecological movement, right? As in it was coming, the great acceleration was coming into her conscious awareness because she didn't hear the birds singing in the spring anymore, right? And she was, I mean, part of the genius is to read from that little event into the global whole of, whoa, we're massively changing the ecosystems in a dangerous way. So the sixth extinction is, has lots of precedence in other mass extinction events. And in that sense, there's continuity and sameness. And we could look to those as precedent. And when we do, we gain some insight. It's like every single one has had climate change that preceded it. That is its cause. What caused the climate change? Right? Well, there's all sorts of natural things like volcanism, ice ages, amount of carbon dioxide in the air, etc. 
Um, asteroid, pick one for the dinosaurs that we'd mentioned before. Well, our, which is the fifth extinction event, the sixth is human-caused, is the Anthropocene. And so we, we can look to certain precedents to start to um, gain some insight and to build a thought line. And I think we should, we looked at the Great Acceleration, 1950 to 2020, saw how that's sort of a, a recapitulation, um, or, or the coronavirus recapitulates that in a few months um, of a seven-year time span. But what we didn't really talk about is, is not a precedent, but, but what is the precedent that we could use to help understand our present moment above all these, these crises and these emergencies? Does that make some sense? Yeah, definitely. And you had mentioned a little bit earlier the notion of expansionism as a sort of like governing uh, human trait. And so I, I just wonder what kind of uh, thinking are you applying there? Um, is it evolutionary or is it, uh, yeah, so what are we drawing from when we're using that? So human beings are naturally evolved animals. What is distinctive about human beings that sets us now apart um, so on the one hand, we're a part of evolutionary patterns. On the other hand, we're distinctive in certain ways, as all species are. What is our distinctiveness that sets us apart from other species? Well, it is our, is our conscious capacity. Um, as in, we are able to bring evolutionary process increasingly into conscious awareness. We are able to bring our own lives into some degree of conscious awareness. And the past, we call that history, right? The story we tell of the past is, is history. So that conscious awareness sets us apart, and, and it means that the natural um, tendency uh, pattern of any species to expand to the limits of what it can within its niche, humans do that too. But because we distinctively inhabit this sort of symbolic sphere of thinking and cognition and thinking about... Well, we, we kind of don't have any competitors in that sphere. So we can outthink animals. In many ways, they're far more intelligent than we are if you pick the right scale or the right element. But when it comes to symbolic capacity to think, well, we outstrip any animal. And so we have no competitors there. So like a virus, we spread across the, the globe and dominate. And, and in the 20th century, when you combine it with incredible industry and technology that is tied to our thinking, we explode in this great acceleration that is causing global climate change. So the expansion it gets ramped up another level, and so I call it expansionism, right? And the ism means kind of a system of thinking that's tied to that capacity. So expansion is a natural evolved capacity that all species do. Expansionism, I would say, is a distinctive trait of human beings, and it means we can expand beyond natural limits, which we've been doing for a very long time. But in the 20th century and now into the 21st, that capacity has been ratcheted up so high that it's threatening global health. It is changing the climate of the planet, and it's helping to bring about a convergence of all of these crises. So in some ways, what we're talking about is, is human consciousness, as in what makes humans distinctive. And so one of the things is that it's a ramping up or an ex acceleration of those natural processes, um, which allows us huge uh, potential for a huge capacity for, uh, well, self-destruction self in one sense, or, or, or other things, right? Um, and then the other point is, is that within that expansionism and within what we're doing with that power that we have, 
there's a whole level, another level of meaning, which arises from, from us knowing exactly what it is we're doing as we're doing it. That's right. And that is presumably the humanly distinctive thing that we have self, not just consciousness, which animals have too, and plants arguably have some degree of that. Um, but that we have self-conscious awareness about the meaning of these events. So, so they're not just physical or evolved or natural or processes. They're all of those. But to that, we can add a level of, of thinking about the meaning of it and evaluating it and worrying about it and caring for it and despairing about it or loving it or feeling hopeful about it. All of those. So that's one piece, and it's how, how evolutionary process as something natural becomes history, which has a lot more conscious storytelling to it. We tell the meaning of the evolution. So we talked about the precedent and uh, to our current situation, and also how our current situation is unique to a great extent. Yeah. I'm thinking that, is there any precedent to the solution that we're going to have to figure out to solve the situation and the crisis that we are in. Yeah, well, I think, again, there's multiple, but let's zero in on one. And that is the notion that World War II is a precedent for our times. In what way? World War II is, is a global crisis, right? Hitler mobilizes the German people, forms the Nazi party, um, and plans world domination. He creates some allies, right? Italy, Japan, right? and each of them have their own f agendas for, for how they will participate in, in a global takeover. And then Western countries and Eastern European countries, some get conquered, um, need to get sucked into a war, but it, it, it quite rapidly, and notice here there's a great acceleration again, it quickly accelerates into a war on a global scale because Europe is the, the colonial superpowers, the empires that span the earth. And they, they pull their resources from everywhere, from Africa, from Asia, from Australia, from the Spice Islands, which is Indonesia and, and, and Polynesia and Micronesia, um, South America, North America, like European empire, European colonialism was a global phenomena and it gets mobilized for war. How is that a precedent for the contemporary crisis? Well, we need to mobilize on a global scale to combat the enemy. The enemy now is not Hitler and the Nazis. The enemy is ourselves, is what is global climate change, it is, is on a global scale that we are threatened with, with serious loss of health and life and suffering. And the, the, the key word here is, is emergency and mobilization. So what happens in America is, a, is a, the, the pristine example to use for this. America in 1939 was totally unprepared for war. It did not want to go to war. I mean, very rarely do countries want to go to war. Um, but it was quite xenophobic in, in ways that are parallel to a lot of the rhetoric we hear about building a wall and keeping you know, foreigners out uh, today in American politics. Right? It, it was similar. It was not interested in global stuff. It was interested in developing itself. Um, and it really didn't want to go back into the whole European theater. And, and I think the preference of many at the time would have been to not get involved in this war at all. It was clear to a number that we would have to be 
involved in the war. It was clear that we needed to ally with, you know, England and France and places like that um, in order to fight the war. And so there was a, uh, a massive mobilization effort that was kicked in um, by the government to get everyone on board in order to, to gear up for war with Germany and, and with Japan, right? America was certainly going to have to fight the war on the Pacific front in a way that the Europeans would not. Right? And uh, so what you see is a zero preparation for a war in the year 1939 in America. Within five years, you see a, a nation that is mobilized at every single level, right? Housewives in their gardens are planting vegetables for the war effort. And it's not trivial, right? The transfer, the transformation of all of, they call them the victory gardens, the transformation of like domestic gardening for producing of food contributes 50% of American food during the war. That's amazing. We should be doing the same, frankly, right? We should be mobilizing for local food. And you, and you can see this here and there, um, but we, you don't see it coordinated in the way that the government response to the coronavirus has been coordinated, and the argument of um, a psychologist, believe it or not, um, Margaret Klein Solomon, is that we need to use that model, that precedent of wartime mobilization in order to confront the emergency of potential conquering by an enemy. We need to use exactly that model as precedent for combating climate change, right? We are in a climate emergency, the Canadian government declared a climate emergency last summer, so it's been more than a year that we've been in it, right? They have not, it's been mostly rhetorical. They've not mobilized the country to combat this climate emergency in the same way that they have mobilized us to combat coronavirus. But the argument of the climate mobilization movement is that we use the wartime mobilization effort to do exactly the same, to mobilize at the, the domestic level of our gardens, of our homes, the municipal level of our cities, our communities, the rural level, the, pr the provincial or state level, the federal level, and the internet. At every single possible level, we mobilize an effort to combat the enemy, and the enemy is, is our own human destruction of the environment. That kind of response to me sounds much different than the discourse that we hear every day. You know, technology is going to fix it compared to what you're saying is that we need a diversity of tools. And also we need to kind of rethink perhaps our consumption patterns and all that. And perhaps uh, we can explore this sort of like uh, what kind of response we would need to combat the climate change in one of the future topics and talk about uh, the kind of rhetorics we hear in our everyday discourse today. Yeah, we should come back to that. And, and um, Klein Solomon's rhetoric is very different in that way. She's a, a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, and she gives up her career in order to combat climate change. But she takes what she learned in, in her clinical psychology career, which is that things like fear and despair, the solution to them is not to repress them or suppress them or deny them. The solution is to learn how to live with them and face them and learn to discover that we have capacities beyond those and that, in fact, if you face your fear and despair, it doesn't go away, but it transforms your how you deal with them. Um, you cease trying to simply suppress or repress or deny, and you start to say, well, that, that is actually not helping, but I, I am going to turn and what she does she tries she wants to transform that fear and despair into hope and above all into action and she makes appeal to what did the the president 
of the United States develop at the beginning of the war. Well, he said, we need a plan for victory. We need to defeat the Germans and the Japanese. You know, losing is not an option. And so they had developed a victory plan, and she uses exactly, they. Have, so there is a victory plan, go and look it up on the internet, Climate Mobilization Organization. They have a victory plan for how to counter climate change. And, and a lot of it is rooted in the psychology, which is a theme we're coming back to again and again, right? Rather than despair about the climate, let us face our despair and transform that into meaningful action aimed at countering and combating our own destructive um, impacts on the environment. And let's use exactly the same human capacity to think our problems, not to increase the destructiveness of them, which is what the Great Acceleration has been doing. Let's use our industry and technology, which is not going to be the only solution. She's a psychologist and she knows there's a lot more to it than just that. Um, but let's use our industry and technology, but let's use them in ecologically respecting ways. Let's use them to counter um, climate change, to draw down carbon and sequester it, which is Project Drawdown, which is another you know, positive effort that, that's being undertaken. Uh, let's do that in order to um, stop climate change from bringing about like terrible destruction.